What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 188. And we are so excited today to finally be in our new set. Oh, my God. It has been a long time coming to <laughs> get to this really point. Has. You guys have no idea. Well, we did a whole custom situation. This is a custom table, which, first of all, can we just take note of how beautiful this table is? So cool. This I is love not it. paint, you guys. If you're watching on YouTube, this is actually acid that yeah. created these colors on metal. It's like an acid wash, I want to say. Yeah. On metal. And mm -hmm. it creates this, you know, beautiful, it almost looks like an aerial, aerial view of islands. To it me. does. Like if you're going to like look at like satellite yes. images of, of some islands, it looks like ocean. Kind of like, like a globe. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I love how it turned out. Our sets, all three of our sets were designed by the lovely Blair Fowler, who has been on YouTube for many, many years. You guys might remember Juicy, Juicy Star, Star 07, 07, baby. Yep. That's right. So she helped us come up with this amazing table design. Don't you feel official? I do. I feel like I'm sitting at like a, a news desk <laughs> or something. Too. It's, it's really cool. It, you know, more spaced out because we're gearing up for a whole new year. We're going to bring guests on. Yes. We're going to have like so much more going on than we did in our previous studio, which is really nice. Plus, this is at our, our office space versus yeah. at our house now. So it was a little. So the dogs aren't going to come to the door and like. Yeah. On yeah. It. Sometimes they like bang into the door while we're recording. So this is yeah. a much more professional setup for sure. Yep. Of course, we kept our sign because it's iconic, but we have changed it a bit. As you guys can see, there is now a kind of plant frame around it that Miss Corelli from the sesh helped us get that all set up. It looks fantastic. I'm so happy with this set. I think it looks great. And yeah. we have plenty of room now for guests because we were a little tight in the other studio. It didn't look like that on camera, but it was. With it all was. the cameras and everything in there, there's Much a lot of things. <laughs> the one thing that we are going to keep working on, and I know it's probably a little bit dark on some of the, the shots here, but yeah. our lighting situation, we're, we're kind of, a, it's a work in progress. So yeah, lighting's really, really difficult. And, you know, we're in an office building, so we have, you know, like fluorescent oh. shitty lighting above. Yeah, it's very hard so it's to like light. Balancing that with... All yeah, we've had some difficulties with all three shows getting it ready because we're all we're also using all new equipment, new cameras, new mics. Everything is new. So getting that all set up and adjusted for the, the new shows have been a little bit of a challenge, but I'm happy with it. I think everything looks great. And yeah, all the hard work we've put in in the last year trying to get this ready has paid off, I think. I, I hope so. I hope I hope you guys like it. <laughs> They're like, we hate yeah. it. <laughs> I know there'll probably the be studio. some people who'll be like, yeah, I like the other one better. Oh, yeah, there will be people. It's okay. I understand. Some people, you know, the wood was their vibe and everything. It's a whole new, a whole new situation. Yeah, it's like a new age of mile higher. Like we had is. our new era. This is a new era. Yeah. Huh? Our third round of new set here. Hey, we can or all fourth, agree. Fifth round, it's actually. much better than the basement yeah. <laughs> and the green screen. Yeah, seriously. That was that was pretty rough. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we have a very interesting case to get into today. This one is wild. I mean, it's probably one of the craziest coaster. cases we've ever covered, I would say. I think so. It's, it's insane. So many twists and turns and just the, the craziness within is the on another level. <laughs> on another level, man. I mean, this this one doesn't get you're going to walk away from this one being like, just what the hell happened? Yeah, here? it's pretty wild. Janelle's here too, of course. Shout out. What's up, homies? Me and Char are here. New podcast, new producer set. Everything's yeah. new. New background. New back background. There. Yeah, it's a little wrinkly. Yeah, we might change it up <laughs> a little bit. We're still working yeah. on the producer setup, I think, a little bit. So, mm -hmm. but if you're listening, I highly suggest you either start listening on Spotify for one, because we now upload video on Spotify. Yes, yeah, so you can watch on Spotify. 
And while we're on that topic, we should mention that the show as a whole is going to be uploading everything on Wednesdays going forward. We're no longer be uploading on Mondays. Yes. I know that annoyed people anyway. So we got rid of that whole situation. Because now when we upload audio to Spotify, Spotify has the video already sort of ingrained into the platform. It's becoming a lot like YouTube now, which is really cool. Yeah, it's very cool. I'm really excited they did that. So really yeah. staying with the time, Spotify. And we're one of the few shows that get to yeah, experience really cool. that and test it out. It's really mm-hmm. cool that they allowed all three of our shows to do that. So yeah. sweet. Yeah, I think we're one of the few uh true crime shows that actually do video as well. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's very common in the true crime. No, world. not not too many that mm-hmm. do do video. So yeah, yeah, that's what's cool is that you can watch this and listen to it if you want on Spotify. And I mean, that's yeah. the the platform for podcasts now, really. And if you've never watched one of our episodes, it's really worth checking out, especially if it's something that we have a lot of clips in or a lot of visuals, because we do add a whole lot. Our producer, Joel, other producer, it, he does an amazing job adding in so many different visuals and mm-hmm. all kinds of cool stuff to see as you watch. That is right. All right. So we've got, a, this? yeah, this is a, a massive case. We have a lot to cover here. So we're just going to go ahead and jump right into it. But this episode of the Malhar podcast is brought to you by Pretty Litter, HelloFresh, Modern Fertility, Nutrafol, and Stitch Fix. Yes. Thank you to our sponsors. So the case that we're covering is involves several individuals. There's actually quite a few people sort of involved as a whole, but the main people that we're going to be talking about are Dave Krupa and Carrie Farver. Now, if you know, ever heard of the author Anne Rule, she's famous for writing her book, The Stranger Beside Me, I believe Mm -hmm. it's called, on Ted Bundy and her relationship with him. And her daughter, Leslie Rule, wrote a book called A Tangled Web that is specifically about this case. So that should tell you right there, a whole book about this case. Mm -hmm. So we've tried to take that whole book, (laughs) condense it down. (laughs) We got a lot of our information from this book. And just so you know, some of the pseudonyms that are used throughout this case are there for privacy reasons, as you'll soon Mm -hmm. find out. So just want to give you that sort of FYI. But the other person we're going to be talking about in addition to Dave and Carrie is Liz Gallier. So just keep those names in mind because we're going to have to kind of start with looking at the backgrounds of these individuals before we sort of get into the meat of of the story and where everything sort of goes crazy. So... Mm -hmm. That leads us to start with background of Carrie Farver. So Carrie Leah Farver was born on November 30th, 1974 to Nancy Bisbee and Dennis Farver. She grew up in Macedonia, Iowa. Carrie had an older brother named Adam and a younger half-brother named John. Her parents divorced when she was 18 months old, and her parents were still on very good terms, though, and she had a close relationship with both of them. Nancy remarried her high school sweetheart, Mark Rainey, when Carrie was just six years old, and Carrie loved Mark. She loved having two dads. Carrie lived in Macedonia her whole life, and it was a small country town with a population of only 250 people, so very small. Everyone knew each other there, and people were friendly. Carrie's family lived in Iowa for generations. Even some of her great-great-grandparents had lived in Macedonia. She came from a long line of loving and compassionate people. Kindness was just in Carrie's blood. And not only was Carrie a kind person, she was also brilliant. As a child, her teachers quickly realized that she was intelligent and had placed her in the school's gifted program. And like her mother, she loved the theater. And they were both talented actresses and singers. 
Carrie spent a lot of time in her childhood performing plays and musicals with her community theater. Being the beautiful and smart girl that Carrie was, she had always had her fair share of boyfriends, and it was hard not to be attracted to her confidence and fearlessness. After Carrie graduated high school, she went to college at the University of Kansas, where she started dating a boy named Frank. At some point in their relationship, they were actually about to break up. However, Carrie ended up finding out that she was pregnant. The two tried their best to keep the relationship going, but it didn't work out. So Carrie moved back to her parents' house in Macedonia and did online class instead. And then on December 10th, 1997, Carrie gave birth to a baby boy named Maxwell, or Max for short. Even though Carrie was a 23-year-old single mom and busy with school, she was an amazing mother. A few years after Max was born, Nancy started to notice that Carrie was acting differently. Sometimes she had severe anxiety attacks that were pretty difficult to deal with. She'd also fall into periods of depression where she couldn't get out of bed, and she'd isolate herself from people around her. Eventually, Carrie was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Medication seemed like it helped her condition a lot, and she was back to her usual upbeat self after a while. But Nancy didn't think the doctor who said she was bipolar made the right diagnosis. None of her other doctors had diagnosed her with bipolar disorder. Not only that, but Carrie had never really shown any symptoms that were typical of a manic episode. Throughout the rest of her 20s, she bounced around different jobs, and she also had gotten married and divorced twice. And she spent a few years living with Max in Topeka, Kansas. Eventually, though, she moved back to Macedonia. Carrie ended up getting a job she absolutely loved as a computer programmer at West Corporation in Omaha, Nebraska. In 2012, she was working on a big project there when she met Dave Krupa. David Alexander Krupa was born on October 9th, 1976 in Sioux Falls, South Dakota to parents Tom and Trish. He usually just went by Dave. Dave was his parents' first child, but he also had two younger brothers named Adam and Max. His dad worked at a printing company and his mom worked as a veteran service officer. The Krupas were a very honest and hardworking family. As Southern Baptists, they were very religious, and they went to church three times a week. The Southern Baptist Church is pretty strict and religiously conservative. However, the Krupa brothers really never held on to those beliefs. Unlike their parents, religion just ended up not being a big part of their personal lives. Dave had a very happy childhood, though. His family was very loving, and he said that they were a perfect household. The Krupa boys grew up in a typical suburban home with a big backyard and lots of friendly neighbors and friends. After graduating high school, Dave moved to Denver and spent two years with the National Guard there. He also earned an associate's degree in automotive engineering before moving back to Sioux Falls. Eventually, though, Dave moved to Council Bluffs, Iowa and started working at a truck stop. He quickly fell for one of his co-workers, a young woman named Amy Flora, and they ended up dating for a decade and ended up having two kids together. Amy wanted to tie the knot officially, but Dave wasn't big on marriage, so they eventually broke up in 2011. It was tense after the split, but they stayed civil because they co-parented their kids. In 2012, Dave moved to Omaha, Nebraska, which is a city right next to Council Bluffs, where Amy still lived. He liked his apartment, his job, and spending time with his kids, but he was still lonely. He'd also been out of the dating game for a while, as Amy was his last girlfriend, and they had been dating since he was just 22 years old. So Dave created a profile on the dating website, Plenty of Fish, and he started chatting with a woman named Liz Golier. The two agreed to grab coffee in Omaha, and at this point, Dave was 35 and working as a mechanic. Liz was 38, and like Dave, she had two kids. 
On their first date, Dave told her that he had just gotten out of a long-term relationship and wasn't looking for anything too serious. Liz said that that was fine with her. She was busy with her kids and her housekeeping business, so she didn't really have time for a relationship either. So the two of them started seeing each other regularly over the next few weeks. Dave could tell that Liz was pretty into him, and he thought Liz was attractive and fun to be around, which he really liked. And after a few weeks of hanging out, Dave started to, unfortunately, lose interest. He didn't think Liz was all that smart or well-read. He wanted someone who was a bit more intellectual. Also, Liz ended up being super clingy and a bit nosy. She wanted to spend way more time together than Dave was comfortable with. He wanted to keep his options open, so he decided to get back on plenty of fish. From there, Dave started going on more dates and hooking up with other women. After his last long relationship, he really wanted to spend some time playing the field and seeing multiple people. When Dave started casually dating Liz, he was very upfront about the fact that he didn't want to be in an exclusive relationship. He also told her that he would keep seeing other women and that, you know, just keep it casual. Liz agreed to keep seeing Dave under those conditions, and at first, everything was fine. That is until Liz started showing up at his apartment before some of his dates. Ooh, Super clean. She also told Dave that she deleted her Plenty of Fish profile right after they met because she only wanted to see him. Yikes. But Dave was still firm about what he wanted. He told her it was a waste of time to wait around for a relationship with him that was likely never going to happen. He encouraged Liz to go out and find someone that she could actually date. But Liz told him that she wasn't going to do that. He decided that if she wanted to keep sleeping with him anyway, that was her decision. So the two of them saw each other on and off for a while. On one hand, Liz knew how to have a good time. And she could be a lot of fun. But on the other hand, she was jealous, clingy, and passive-aggressive. Whenever Dave came back from hanging out with his kids in Council Bluffs, Liz would make snarky comments about it. She'd accuse him of going there just to spend time with Amy. In reality, Amy and Dave weren't really on the best of terms during this time. They didn't talk much outside of when they, you know, were dealing with the kids, dropping them off. And it pissed off Dave when Liz would make comments about him seeing Amy, especially because he was completely just there to visit with his kids. And at one point, Dave had enough of Liz's behavior, and he decided to break things off. But Liz always had a way of seducing him back. Every few weeks, she'd pop back into his life and right back out again after they would fight. Over and over, Liz ignored Dave when he told her that he didn't want to commit to her. She just wouldn't take no for an answer. She started to get delusional about what was going on between them. For example, in her emails to Dave, she kept insisting that he wasn't being honest about his feelings for her. She wrote long messages trying to persuade him or guilt him into an exclusive relationship. Uh-oh, red flag. Yeah. But these emails kind of worked out in Liz's favor. After her relentless emails, Dave agreed to be exclusive for a month. But the situation with Liz was totally exhausting. One day, Dave was working at an auto shop when a woman named Carrie Farver brought her Ford Explorer in for a repair. As they were sort of going over what needed to be repaired, they got closer and closer as they were looking under the hood of the car, and they started feeling sort of that tension, that instant connection between them. Dave thought Carrie was beautiful, but he didn't want to ask out a client while he was at work. But later on, he found Carrie on Plenty of Fish, and they started chatting. Carrie brought her car back to the shop two weeks later, just as Dave was finishing his exclusive month with Liz. At that point, they exchanged numbers and planned a date at an Applebee's in Omaha. On their date, 
the two hit it off right away. Dave thought Carrie was perfect for him. She was smart, worked a good job, and they made each other laugh constantly. Plus, he couldn't take his eyes off of her. But in the middle of the date, Liz started blowing up Dave's phone with endless texts and calls. He tried to ignore it and focus on his date, but she wouldn't stop. Liz was demanding to come over to Dave's apartment and grab some stuff she'd left behind. And Dave told her he was on a date and she'd have to wait till later. Ooh, that pissed her off. Oh yeah, she's like, uh-uh. After the dinner date, the two of them went back to Dave's apartment and they spent some time talking and getting to know each other more. Then all of a sudden, Dave's buzzer at his apartment started to go off over and over again. And when he went to the front entrance to see who was there, of course he saw Liz. She was crying and demanding that Dave let her in. So he went back and told Carrie that his ex was crying at the front door and he needed to just take care of that situation. Carrie was actually super chill about the whole thing. She told him that he could figure everything out and then call her after. So Dave walked Carrie out of the building and that's when she and Liz saw each other for the first time. Carrie walked right past her and neither of them said a word to each other. After Liz left, Dave immediately called Carrie. It was still early in the night and Carrie's grandparents were watching Max, so she invited Dave over to her house in Macedonia. And while the two of them were hanging out, it was very obvious that they were both really into each other. But Carrie wanted to be clear about her expectations. She said that she wasn't looking for anything serious. She just wanted something fun and casual. Obviously, this made Dave really happy because they were both looking for the same thing. He spent the night and the two of them saw each other multiple times over the next two weeks. So the commute from Macedonia to Carrie's job in Omaha was pretty long. So Dave's place was right near her office and spending the night there was a perfect way to save time. And she slept over there a lot. The two of them got along great and they really enjoyed each other's company. Meanwhile, Liz was desperately trying to hang on to Dave. She sent him rambling emails multiple times a day trying to keep his attention. But Dave, of course, just ignored most of them. So then on the night of November 10th, 2012, someone actually vandalized Carrie's car, her Ford Explorer, by keying it and spraying silver paint all over it. She recorded a video of the damage on her camcorder and then made a Facebook post about it. The whole incident was definitely a hassle, but she pretty much brushed it off after she cleaned up her car. So Thursday night, apparently somebody here in the whopping metropolis of Macedonia, Iowa, decided Max's Explorer was not the right color. We're going to go see if we can fix that. Somebody thought they were quite the artist. Oh, what the hell? So then on November 12th, 2012, Carrie spent the night at Dave's place again. She needed to be at West Court pretty early to finish a project that she was working on. It was a typical night for the two of them, and nothing was out of the ordinary. The following morning on November 13th, 2012, Dave woke up early and got ready for work. And he remembered seeing Carrie laid out on the couch in her PJs working on a coding project. She had to be at work at 6.30 a.m. and Dave's place was just a quick walk away from her office. At 6.15, Carrie called her supervisor and gave her an update on the project she was working on. At 6.25, Dave left for work and on his way out, he kissed Carrie goodbye and told her that he'd see her tonight and everything seemed perfectly normal. 6.30 a.m. came and went and Carrie didn't show up for work. At 6.42, her computer logged off of Facebook. Then at 9.54 a.m., her cell phone logged back into Facebook. Her account removed David Krupa from her friends list. Around that same time, Carrie's Facebook account responded to her own post about the car vandalism incident. The comment said that it turned out to be just kids, and it didn't explain any further than that. 
20 minutes later, Dave got a surprising text from Carrie. She was asking to move in together, and this came totally out of left field. It was so bizarre because he thought they were on the same page about what their relationship was. So Dave immediately said no, and a few seconds later, he got a text back, and it said, Fine. I hate you. I'm dating someone else. I don't want to see you anymore. Go away. Meanwhile, Carrie's supervisor at work was starting to get confused. She really needed to be there that day. But hours passed, and Carrie was nowhere to be found. She called her phone multiple times, but all she got was her voicemail. Dave came home from work that day and saw that all of her stuff was gone. And those texts he received from her earlier really weirded him out. But he shrugged it off and told himself that maybe he had just dodged a bullet. Nancy, Carrie's mom, was starting to get worried. She received a text from her number saying that she was getting a new job. It didn't make any sense to Nancy because she knew that Carrie absolutely loved her job at West Corporation. Multiple days passed and Nancy didn't see her daughter. She called her over and over again, but there was no response. She only got weird text messages back. One of the texts said that Carrie was thinking of checking into a mental hospital. She also mentioned that she had broken up with her boyfriend. Another one said she was going to move to Kansas with Dave. That Friday, Nancy reported her daughter missing. And the cops at the sheriff's office didn't really give Nancy's report a lot of attention, though. They thought that Carrie was an adult and, you know, she probably just left and she'd come home eventually. But Nancy knew her daughter. Something was seriously wrong. The way that the police were treating her disappearance was really frustrating. And Max was the most important person in Carrie's life. And Carrie would never abandon him like this. Not only that, but Carrie's half-brother John was getting married that weekend and she was not about to miss that wedding for anything. And if that wasn't enough reason to just vanish, her father Dennis was battling stomach cancer, and he didn't have a lot of time left. So it was super important that everyone in the family came to John's wedding. That weekend, though, Carrie did not show up. Max spent the entire day staring at the door, waiting for the moment that his mother would walk in, but it never came. Meanwhile, Dave was starting to get pretty freaked out. A few days after Carrie had asked to move in, he started getting more weird texts from her. They were all really angry, and they didn't make a lot of sense. They were full of grammar and spelling mistakes, and some of them even said she hated Dave and called him names, while others would say that she loved him. Many of the texts were about Liz, and they were pretty brutal. Some of them called her a fat, ugly whore who wasn't good enough for Dave. Liz also started to get nasty texts from Carrie, telling her to back off of Dave and threatening to hurt her and her kids if she didn't. One day, Liz called the police and reported that someone had broken into her garage. The burglar stole one of her old invalid checkbooks and also spray-painted the phrase, whore from Dave, on her wall. Then on the night of November 17th, Carrie's mother Nancy got a text from Carrie. It was a picture of one of Liz's old checks written out for $5,000 and made out to Carrie Farver. And the signature on the check was actually Liz's real name, Shanna Gullier. Her middle name was Elizabeth, so she went by Liz. The text said that Carrie had sold her bedroom set and that she needed her mother to let the buyer into the house to get it. Nancy couldn't believe her eyes. That bedroom set was actually a family heirloom. Carrie would have never sold it off like that. She was sure that her daughter was not the one behind these texts. So Nancy responded and said, I need to hear your voice first so that I know it's really you. And all of a sudden, she responded with a flurry of really nasty texts, calling Nancy controlling and a bad mother. 
At first, she was really hurt and angry, but then she realized that her daughter would not say these things, and it couldn't have been her sending these messages. Harry would never speak to her like that. And not only that, but the texts were full of misspelled words. Her daughter, who was a computer programmer and clearly a smart woman, was a stickler for grammar, and every email and text that she sent had to be perfect. So Nancy obviously is like, something's up with these texts. This Mm -hmm. is clearly not my daughter. So she shows the police these texts and tells them that this couldn't have come from Carrie. But the police weren't exactly convinced that some misspelled words were proof of that. More messages rolled in throughout the next few days, and some of them said that she was moving to Kansas and taking Max with her. Nancy kept trying to work with the police, and at one point, she mentioned that her daughter had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And when the police heard this, the direction they took the case in completely changed. They told Nancy that Carrie probably had a manic episode, went through a breakdown, and then just took off. To them, it was just another case of a bipolar person off of their meds and just skipping town. Again, Nancy didn't necessarily believe that the diagnosis of bipolar disorder was correct. She thinks that she was misdiagnosed. She had her struggles, but she'd never done anything that drastic before. So this would have been the first time something like this had happened ever. About a week after Carrie was last seen, her supervisor got a text from her. It said that she was quitting her job at West Corporation and moving to Kansas. Police also tracked down Liz since her name was on the check Nancy got a photo of. Liz told police that she was pretty sure Carrie had stolen her checks and she'd actually been stalking her and Dave. Investigators found out that some of Carrie's cell phone messages were being sent from Liz's neighborhood. They searched for her there, but they didn't find Carrie or her missing Ford Explorer. When they interviewed Dave, he explained that he had been getting hundreds of harassing messages from Carrie every day. And then one of the detectives got a text from Carrie telling them to leave David Krupa out of the investigation. The detectives responded and told her that her case wouldn't be closed until they spoke to her in person. Carrie texted back and told them to leave her alone. And then she told them, I want one person to go away for destroying everything for me. At that point, police were convinced that Carrie wasn't missing, that she was just a jealous stalker that had gone crazy. The weeks of harassment went on, and Dave was getting really sick of it. He was getting over 50 messages a day from Carrie, and sometimes he would get so many messages that his phone would break. He tried changing his number and email addresses, but the messages just did not stop. Somehow, Carrie always found his new numbers. Most of the messages were totally unhinged, full of threats, cursing, and of course, a lot of spelling errors. Some of the messages Liz got threatened to kill her and her kids if she didn't leave Dave alone. And at the same time, Carrie was professing her love for Dave and telling him that she was going to get rid of Liz so they could finally be together. But oddly enough, all of the stalking and harassment actually started bringing Liz and Dave back together. He felt really bad that he had dragged Liz into this nightmare. But she actually was surprisingly understanding about it all, and she put up with the constant threats from Carrie. He was grateful that she was being such a trooper through everything. But he was really worn down about the whole situation. Being stalked made him feel scared and alone. And Liz ended up being a source of comfort for him. She was someone who deeply understood what he was going through because she was going through it too. Sometimes when the two of them hung out, they'd get texts from Carrie at the same time. They'd be watching a movie when all of a sudden both of their phone screens would blow up with threatening text messages. They tried to stay positive and they would just joke around that crazy Carrie was at it again. 
Once at the end of December, Dave got a text from Carrie's number telling him that she was pregnant. And Liz got one telling her to back off Dave for the sake of the baby. But Dave knew that he couldn't have gotten her pregnant. He had actually had a vasectomy a while ago. And Carrie had a hysterectomy before they met, although Dave didn't know that at this point. Liz begged for Carrie to leave her alone. She even said she'd stop seeing Dave if it meant the harassment would end. But the text just kept coming through for months and months. The messages that really freaked out Dave were the ones that said that Carrie was watching him. Once Dave was sitting in his reclining chair at his apartment when he got a text from Carrie that said, I see you in the chair with your feet propped up. You're wearing a blue t-shirt. So he knew that someone was definitely watching him. Whenever he got these types of texts, he would run outside and try to spot Carrie, but he never found her. Now, Amy, Dave's ex, was also being harassed. She started getting scary texts from Carrie all the time, warning her to stay away from Dave. And the whole thing was really starting to take a toll on her as well. She couldn't understand what she had done to possibly deserve any of this. On November 29th, 2012, Nancy and Mark became Max's legal guardians. It hurt Nancy to file for guardianship, but she didn't think she had any other options. Carrie's 38th birthday was the next day, and it came and went without her. The family tried to keep Dennis in the dark about his daughter's disappearance. He was very sick and weak. Still, he couldn't help but notice that she hadn't come to see him anymore. They didn't want to upset him, so they tried to break it to him as gently as possible. And when they did, he was absolutely devastated. That is just so heartbreaking to think about. Like, this man is sick. Yeah. He doesn't know his daughter's missing. And then he finds out. and He's probably like, oh my gosh, well, I'm going to pass away. Mm -hmm. It's just the whole thing is so sad. Yeah, just such mental mind games. Mm -hmm. I mean, ugh. And especially knowing that none of it just makes any sense at all. Like, Mm -hmm. you're just like, what is going on here? Like, why why would she, why would she just walk away from everything and cut everybody off, essentially? And why would she be so angry at so many people and harassing all these people when she only knew Dave for like two weeks before she started doing this? And there's just no patterns of that in her past Mm -hmm. to really, for that to make sense. Other than this bipolar disorder diagnosis that has been disputed. On December 7th, Dennis died of stomach cancer. And the family got no word from Carrie. Max turned 15 three days later. And his mother never showed up. Dennis's funeral was held on the 12th. And again, family members glanced at the door constantly. Just waiting for Carrie to come and say goodbye to her dad. But Carrie never came. But her Facebook account posted an update apologizing for missing the funeral and of course this is just so out of character like what? i mean we know that she was close with her father she cared about him very much and she just never would do this one night after dennis's passing nancy saw him in a dream and he spoke lovingly and told her nancy she's with me and it was after that dream that she knew carrie had passed away isn't that interesting that's wild i know nancy desperately wanted her daughter to be found alive but the dream gave her some sense of peace. She was relieved to know that Carrie was safe with her loved ones in heaven. But still, she knew that her daughter's case needed to be solved. So, I mean, it's pretty clear that her her mother has like, figured out that somebody is yeah. posing as her daughter mm-hmm. at this point. I mean, none of it's adding up. And not hearing from her for so long, not hearing her voice, her missing these huge milestones, not being there for her son, I mean... It's starting to seem that way. Right. And especially when she got the text from Carrie and she's like, well, I'm not going to believe anything you're saying right. until you, I hear your voice. And then that just never happened. So I yeah. think she realized something 
something's terribly up. wrong has happened. Yeah. So before we get into what happens next, this is only going to get crazier and crazier. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So getting back to our story here, on January 6, 2013, Nancy logged into her Facebook account and found a new message. And it was from a profile using her daughter's name and photo. Nancy responded, saying that a phone call would be the only way that she would believe that the sender was actually Carrie. So the account sent an angry message back to her. The message said, fine, I will call you, but I am done after that. You have Max, and I am grateful. But after all the cop stuff from before, I am done. I am not 10 years old, mom. I can leave him and move on with someone new. She sent another message saying, everything is about phone call. I was just heading to bed. Who else would know about dad? But fine, I will call you sometime. I just wanted to let you know that I was okay. And there's several grammar and spelling errors in these messages. So of course she was suspicious that this just was not Carrie. Then Carrie's Facebook account posted a status update. And it said that David Krupa had proposed to her. There was also a picture of someone's hand with a wedding ring on it. Nancy thought the hand in the photo couldn't be Carrie's. The fingers were short and stubby, unlike Carrie's fingers, which were long and slim. She forwarded the profile to the police who contacted Dave, and he told them that he obviously never proposed to Carrie. But he also told him that he got a scary email just after midnight on the 6th. It was a photo of a woman with dark hair tied up in the trunk of a car with duct tape over her mouth. And it was hard to tell exactly who it was, but the email said that it was Liz. The sender claimed to be Carrie, and she demanded that Dave dump Liz and get back together with her, or else she'd kill her. He thought the message was bullshit, though, so he went to bed. The next morning, he texted Liz, complaining that Carrie was being psycho again. Liz replied, saying that she was fine and that Dave was sweet for checking in on her. Then two days later, Dave spotted a black Ford Explorer in his apartment complex's parking lot. And he thought, maybe it's Carrie. But it was covered in snow, which meant that it hadn't been driven for days. A forensic investigator came out and checked the car for evidence. The car looked like it had been wiped clean on the inside. She only recovered one fingerprint, which she found on the top of an empty mint tin in the cup holder. Cops ran it through their system, but there was no match. She also spotted a light pink stain on the passenger seat, but she assumed it was just a spill. Meanwhile, Dave and Liz were just becoming exhausted by all of Carrie's games. So they allowed the police to do a phone dump. To do that phone dump, investigators connected a small device to their phones that downloaded all of its contents. It's important to note, though, that this particular download didn't pick up any deleted data. And by this point, Dave was starting to get tired of Liz again. She was back to her normal bullshit, sending him long, passive-aggressive emails to get his attention. Dave felt bad that Liz had put up with so much, so he agreed to set aside one day of the week to spend with her, and that was Wednesday. Then in February, Liz called the cops twice to report that her car had been vandalized. On April 1st, she reported that someone had keyed the phrase whore, stop seeing Dave, into her car. And on April 17th, Nancy got a call from someone claiming to be Dave Krupa. He said that Carrie called him and told him that she was at a homeless shelter in Omaha. Nancy immediately called the police, and she and the detectives went to the shelter to see for themselves. And unfortunately, Carrie was not there. Nancy was absolutely heartbroken. 
When cops asked Dave about the call, he had no idea what they were talking about. So someone had impersonated him on the phone with Nancy. Then on May 3rd, Max worked up the courage to send his mom's Facebook account a message. He sent a simple hi, and he quickly got a message back that said, Hey, little man, how are you? Now, Carrie never called her son little man. He was a teenager, not a little kid. So he didn't think he was talking to his mom. So he sent back some questions. What's my middle name? What's the name of our first dog? And who was my best friend growing up? And of course, this account did not message him back with the answers. And sometimes when Dave had a new woman in his life, they would also get harassing text messages. One woman, who was the mother of two, even got texts from someone threatening to slit her and her children's throats. She hadn't even met Dave in person. They just chatted on Plenty of Fish. That's crazy. I know. So somebody's like monitoring all of Dave's accounts. Somehow. Everything he does. Like it, it seems that somebody's gotten his login information for, especially from Plenty of Fish. I mean, if they're yeah. literally reaching out to everybody Dave's talking to. So scary. That is. At 8.15 a.m. on August 17, 2013, Liz called 911. Someone had broken into her house and set it on fire. And when the firefighters went inside, they found the bodies of Liz's four pets, two dogs, a snake, and a cat, which were all dead from smoke inhalation. That is terrifying. And I would absolutely just destroy someone if they did that to my house and my pets. I can't even imagine the anger. The firefighters immediately began their investigation into the cause of the fire. And quickly they determined that someone intentionally started the fires in multiple rooms of the home. I mean, if you look at the pictures, it was like yeah. roasted. Like this was a serious fire, high temperatures. Things are basically just smoldering ruins here. Liz told the fire chief that a woman named Carrie was stalking her. Because, of course, the firefighters go to her and like, hey, it looks like, yeah, you know, somebody set this. fires here. Who could it be? And she immediately says, oh, it was absolutely Carrie. She's been stalking me. She also showed him an email from her that said, hope you and your kids burn to death. A little while later, Carrie emailed her and claimed she was the one who torched Liz's house. From what I've seen so far looking inside, this is it's pretty obvious. This is an intentionally set fire. The guy that I'm seeing, he has a girlfriend that he dated for two weeks, and she's been stalking me since November. Do you know her name? It's Carrie. C-A-R-I. She has made threats towards me and my kids. She would kept text me telling me she wanted to kill me and my kids. You would think they were married as much as she's stalking me. She oh, won't moving. leave me alone. She will not go away. I just wish she would go away. What do you think of that? I'd be pissed. Someone intentionally set my house on fire and killed all my pets. Scary. Yeah, I mean, luckily her kids weren't home when that fire happened. But was it Carrie? Yeah. Mm, well, it's just like know. when you start thinking about the, all this, it's like you don't really hear stories of stalkers like going to this point that often, right? I, obviously, it happens, yeah. but it's not no, like maybe not that often to where they're committing arson and burning down your entire house with all the animals inside, especially like, when they're completely missing in action from the rest of their lives. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Very, very scary, though. While the firemen were still investigating the fire at her house, Liz called up Dave, and the two of them had had a breakup right before the fire. She told him that Carrie burnt her house down, so Dave felt guilty and left work to go see her. At that point, Dave got sucked back into his relationship with Liz, 
She was constantly guilting him, telling him that he brought Carrie into her life, and Carrie was the one that was terrorizing her and was the one that set her house on fire. The weeks of stalking and vandalism dragged on, and you could tell that it was getting to be too much for Dave. He'd almost lost his job multiple times, and he never felt safe anymore. He also started to drink a lot more than he usually did. Throughout the next year, their harassment continued. Everyone had gotten used to it at this point. The scary texts, the threats, the vandalism, the bricks through the windows. It never made anything easier, though. 2014 came and went with still no signs of Carrie. So in April of 2015, detectives Ryan Avis and Jim Doty decided to take a fresh look at Carrie's disappearance. The two of them came up with a new strategy to try to piece this whole mess together. Detective Avis would examine the case files, assuming that Carrie was still alive, while Detective Doty worked off the assumption that Carrie was dead, something that police hadn't considered much before, surprisingly. Detectives saw one name come up a little too often in their examinations, Liz Gullier. Everything kept pointing back to Liz. There were just too many coincidences. So detectives wanted to start investigating her. Then, just a few days later, they were stunned to see Liz walking through the door of the sheriff's office. On December 4th, 2015, Liz told police that she wanted to file a harassment report against Amy Flora, Dave's ex. She told Detective Avis that Amy was stalking her on Facebook and that she'd probably stole Dave's gun too. Dave had recently bought another gun to protect himself. And a few days later, after Dave and Liz broke up again, the gun went missing. And Liz claimed that the thief had to be Amy, the one who was crazy with jealousy. In fact, she believed that Amy was the one who had been harassing her and Dave the whole time, not Carrie. They only dated for two weeks, and I don't understand why a person would still be stalking him almost three years later. It's getting ridiculous. She keeps stalking me on Facebook. So Amy still would like to be with Dave? I'm guessing. I don't know. Okay. And another strange thing is the detective asked her if she knew what type of gun this was. And right away, she said it was a 9 millimeter. And she said, oh, I only know that because I saw it once. Saw it in the box. That's mm. Smith & Wesson. She like knew exactly what it was, too. Yeah. So she felt like it was much more likely that Amy would be the stalker. Liz told Detective Avis that she had a bunch of threatening texts from Amy to prove it. So he asked to let police download her phone contents. And she agreed. But this time, the download would collect everything that was on that phone, even deleted data, which, of course, Liz did not realize that this was the case. Nope. So then things got even more wild because the next day at 6.41 p.m., Liz called 911 from Big Lake Park in Council Bluffs. She screamed into the phone that someone had shot her. Let's go ahead and play the 911 call. 911, what's the address of your emergency? I've been shot in the lake. I'm in one of the parking lots on the um, left-hand side. I have a little red Toyota, and I'm laying next to it. Is there more than one wound? Um, I think it's just one. They shot off a couple of shots. They only hit me with one, I think. So, to most of you, especially if you're a big true crime fan, this call is pretty sus right off the bat, right? So, officers, when they arrived on the scene, found Liz bleeding on the ground next to her car, she had been shot in her left thigh, which is also pretty strange. Like if, she, you know, someone's really coming after you, what are the chances they're just going to shoot you in the leg and then run away? But when the officer asked her who shot her, she said she didn't know. 
Then all of a sudden it came to her and she cried out, it was Amy Flora. Amy Flora shot me. Liz said that she was sitting on the bench, just minding her own business, when Amy approached her from behind and said, so you like fucking Dave? And then Amy shot her in the leg and ran off. For what reason, though? What yeah. <laughs> what motive is behind? Seriously. I mean, if you're going to go shoot somebody at night in the middle of the park, it, it seems likely that it would have been a kill shot versus a shot in the leg or something. It, like, yeah. was it just to scare her and then also give up her identity at the mm-hmm. same time? Why would anybody do that? Plus, Amy is showing no signs of wanting Dave back or yeah, jealousy. Yeah, it makes no yeah. sense it really whatsoever. Doesn't. And then I mean, she like she got shot in the thigh and then ran through mm-hmm. the thing and there's no no evidence to back that up it just doesn't make any sense it's pretty obvious liz is kind of starting to lose it at this point yeah not really able to keep her story straight yeah taking desperate desperate measures in order to keep the story going she seems like a desperate person so police searched the area but they couldn't find any evidence of a shooter and the ambulance took liz to a nearby hospital yeah what are the chances that there's a shooting and there's absolutely no evidence no gun no Nothing. nothing to even back that up whatsoever Around 7 p.m., Amy was sitting on her couch when she heard banging at her door. And when she opened it, she saw a bunch of cops with their guns pointing at her. They said that Shanna Gallier told them that Amy Flora had shot her. Amy tried to explain that she had nothing to do with whatever the hell they were talking about. And she agreed to even take a polygraph test. Clearly, she was still shaken up about her experience with the police when she took it. They had just pointed guns at her and accused her of shooting someone. She answered all the questions honestly, but she still failed the polygraph, which we all know polygraph tests are you know they work sometimes sometimes mm-hmm. they don't you know you can't yeah you can't base everything no on a polygraph whatsoever. definitely not especially in court because i mean rarely. it's yeah. it's monitoring heart rate and all these things and if mm-hmm. you had just had a bunch of cops showed up with their guns drawn on you you're you know you would likely fail a polygraph test if that really scared you and happened out of nowhere despite failing the polygraph test though police quickly cleared her of any involvement in the shooting anyway because it was very clear to them that amy wasn't involved Meanwhile, Special Deputy Tony Cava was examining the contents of Liz's phone. The first download of Liz's phone from January 2013 was only a logical download, meaning it didn't collect any deleted data. But this next download captured everything, including anything that had been deleted. And on Liz's phone, Cava found it all. Tens of thousands of messages sent by Liz, texting apps, fake email accounts, and incriminating photos. Liz was indeed impersonating Carrie Farver. She had been the stalker this entire time. There were even photos of Liz staging her kidnapping, photos of Carrie's car before police discovered it, photos of Liz standing in front of a shower curtain she bought using Carrie's credit card, and Kava traced dozens of email addresses, Facebook accounts, and cell phone numbers used to stalk Dave right back to Liz. The sheer volume of data that he was able to recover was enormous. He put in hundreds of extra unpaid hours piecing together all of the texts, emails, and photos, and even created a special machine to log and organize each piece of data. Which it's interesting to that despite how smart Liz thought she was by like downloading mm-hmm. all these apps that help you mask your numbers and spoof wow. spoof email accounts and the email accounts she made for Carrie were just like free Gmail accounts where she just put like yeah. Carrie and Farver in different sort of arrangements and she'd create account after account. But what she also didn't realize is that metadata on pictures, on videos actually tells you time and date of when that photo or video was taken. Mm-hmm. It can sometimes tell you location. 
So it was very easy for a forensic specialist, uh, tech specialist to figure all this out, that it was all clearly coming back. I mean, it's a lot harder to, to fake your IP address and things like that. So it was very clear that all this was stemming from Liz. I would do anything to see what it was like when she took these photos of herself. Oh, I know. Like, it's like, taped what? her own face up. <laughs> Get up in your trunk, your car. Yeah. Like, the distressed face. Oh my god! And then after she's probably like, "All right, I'm gonna go get some McDonald's." Yeah, <laughs> that that should fool them. And in this, uh, the tech specialist Kava said that the amount of time dedicated to pull this off would have been 40, 50 hours a week. Yep. Like this was Liz's full time job. God, that's sad. Honestly. Being a crazy ass stalker. So yeah, after pathetic. after all this came out and they got all this data compiled, it was very clear to the detectives that Liz was absolutely a psychopath and a stalker what's even crazier is that she even burnt her own house down killing all of her yeah. pets mind Whoa. you that like is how so fucked, fucked up is that that is in, i mean wow that's some serious commitment and just pure evil, evil. dude you could not pay no amount of money would ever no. make me do that not that she was getting paid but just in yeah. general what the fuck let yeah. alone a person that you know man love or no jealousy with, like, right? yeah insane yeah. on top of that then she shot herself yeah, that's some serious commitment. In the thigh, and, and she could have easily probably killed herself if and, she and had... And that's when it was just so obvious. Shooting yourself in the thigh. Like, come yeah, on. Nobody aims for the thigh when they're shoot. If you're shooting to shoot somebody, most times yeah. you're aiming for a kill shot, not yeah. in the beefy thigh. Like, come on. <laughs> beefy <man>. thigh. <laughs> Ew. It's just a meaty area. So detectives are like, okay, this all makes sense now. Which it's crazy that it took this long for them yeah. all to sort of wrap their heads around it. But then again, it, it seems like for a long time, detectives were kind of running with this Carrie story because yeah, it did sort of make sense. And they did have that diagnosis of yeah. bipolar disorder. And if you think about it from their perspective, I'm sure they have previous cases where maybe <sighs> stalkers had. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Bipolar disorder is very common and it right. doesn't necessarily align line up with these types of behaviors mm -hmm. at all no. plus just the fact that she'd only known this man for two weeks was completely fine before he left for work that day she was sitting there on the yeah. couch chilling out working and then she just goes Flip. missing and does all this shit it's it seems so obvious like it's surprising that not only the police didn't figure it out but dave as well like it never dawned on him like maybe it's liz this person who has done all this crazy shit in the past and has harassed me over emails and is clearly obsessed with me won't let me go you know, shows up at the apartment on one of their dates, banging on the door. It's just like it's it's very surprising that no one other than Max and her mom Nancy were starting to figure this out. I know. And if I were I them, I'd be so just furious that it took this long to put these pieces together. When it seems, I mean, I'm sure a lot of us can agree this seems pretty obvious. I, I just don't understand why law enforcement doesn't like. I guess maybe it's because it's not available. Well, like utilize a mental health professional. To maybe look at the situation and be like, was there triggers here that could have triggered a manic episode? But it's hard because it's not like they would have had evaluated her in advance. No, so but I'm just really saying, make... but looking at what everybody's telling them, just trying to yeah. get a general overview. No, I see what you're because yeah. if you look at triggers for manic episodes, I mean, it's like lack of sleep, which maybe that that may have been it. She was up late working on this project or whatever. But again, that's just one thing. Blowout arguments with partners, coworkers, or friends. That wasn't happening with Dave. They were... No. They had a great night and we're going to have another great night, most likely. Yeah. I mean, alcohol abuse, There's we don't have any evidence of that. Drug intoxication. And like suddenly demanding to move in and wanting to move in when before she had told him right. so many times she wants right. this like 
casual relationship. That's how I'm like, fun. Dave, dude. How I know. did you not like I know. what? Dave. You really thought she would like come on, Dave. But but then again, I mean, two weeks, how well do you know somebody? You don't know somebody that well. So maybe he just was like, oh, like, this is just a crazy, this woman's crazy. Yes. And, you know, I don't know. And, and also you got to think from his position when this shit all starts happening to you, like your, your ability to think through things logically, I think kind of goes out the window a little bit because you're now scared. You're now dealing with yeah. this fear. And I, I think I it's, it's hard to judge without being in the situation, right? Like it's hard to, I don't know, to say it how I would easy to judge. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. It is. It is. It is kind of. I, I guess. But. After just two weeks, it, it's crazy. This went on for so long. But anyway, let's talk a little bit more about Liz and who this woman was. So, like we mentioned earlier, her real name is Shanna K. Gallier. She was born June twenty eighth, nineteen seventy five, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And Liz was separated from her parents when she was very little, so she doesn't know much about them. Her mother was a kind woman named Dolores, or D for short. Liz's father was Dee's boyfriend, a man named Al Jenkins. Al was a violent alcoholic who repeatedly abused Dee in front of the kids. When Liz was two years old, Michigan Social Services took her and her brother George out of the home. Dee eventually kicked Al out of the house, so Social Services agreed to return the kids. But in 1978, her mother was hit by a car and tragically killed. Social services didn't let her relatives adopt her kids, so Liz and George ended up in foster care. Liz reported that she was abused by at least one of her foster families. Eventually, she was adopted by the Golier family in Battle Creek, Michigan, and they changed her name to Shanna Elizabeth Golier. And she didn't start going by Liz until later in her adult life. In 1997, Liz started dating a man named Raymond. Ray's family was definitely not a fan of her, but their relationship continued, and she ended up getting pregnant that year. During her pregnancy, Ray was suspicious that she was cheating on him with her new roommate, 21-year-old Glenn Herr. On August 25, 1998, Liz gave birth to her son, Cody Nathaniel Golger. And after Cody was born, Liz left Ray for Glenn. Glenn was a very kind-hearted man, but unfortunately, he was very easy for Liz to manipulate. His family actually said he had a mental handicap and a learning disability. Liz moved into Glenn's house, where he lived with his mother, Gloria. And Gloria really did not like Liz from the beginning. She said that she gave her bad vibes. Not only that, Liz was rude and manipulative, and she never paid rent. Gloria also noticed that Cody seemed to be a really fussy and unhappy baby, and he was constantly crying. Then the night of January 28th, 1999, Liz had called Glenn and told him to rush home because she had dropped the baby. But when Glenn got back, Cody seemed fine. But the next morning, January 29th, Gloria noticed that Cody was unusually quiet. Around 5 p.m. that day, Gloria returned home and found Cody unresponsive in his crib. She and Glenn immediately called 911 and police took Cody to the hospital. Tragically, Cody did pass away that night, and his cause of death was listed as shaken baby syndrome. So police ended up questioning Glenn the morning that Cody had died. He told them that he occasionally would gently toss the baby in the air and catch him because it made Cody giggle. So they ended up arresting Glenn for Cody's death. And the police's questioning of Glenn raised some red flags. It seemed like they were taking advantage of his mental state to try and coach him into incriminating himself. 
And that wasn't the only suspicious part of this case. Cody's doctor testified that the baby had died after someone vigorously shook him for 20 or more seconds. And that didn't match up with what Glenn said. He was talking about, you know, a few light yeah, tosses, how you play with a baby in the air. Yeah. So it was pretty unlikely that a light toss could have caused such severe shaken yeah. baby syndrome. Yeah. And after a shaking incident, it can take anywhere from hours to days for a baby to start showing symptoms. Multiple people saw Cody in the days leading up to his death, including Liz, meaning that it's possible she had something to do with Cody's death, especially since she had called Glenn and told him that she accidentally dropped him. Hmm. Mm, that's fishy. So people noticed that Liz wasn't acting like a grieving mother after the baby passed. She actually went on a shopping spree and acted super cheerful around other people and even slept with Ray a day before Cody's funeral. At the funeral, Ray noticed that Liz was smiling and showing pictures of Cody to people as if she had forgotten that her son was in the coffin behind her, and it just sent chills down Ray's spine. Liz took the stand at Glenn's trial disguised in a blonde wig, and this probably has something to do with the fact that she had a warrant out for her arrest for car theft at the time. Wow. It turns out Liz had tried to pin the blame on Gloria the day after Cody died. She told police that Gloria admitted to shaking the baby, which obviously never happened. The final blow to Glenn's defense came when Liz read a series of letters that she claimed Glenn sent her from jail. And this is where we start to see Liz's MO in action. In the letters, Glenn admitted that Liz had nothing to do with Cody's death. Some of them had dramatic confessions of love for Liz. In one of the letters, Glenn told Liz that he and Raymond had talked about her. Glenn and Raymond never talked and weren't friends, so this made absolutely no sense. Gloria knew that these letters were complete bullshit. Her son had a learning disability, and he couldn't write any of the complex sentences in those letters. But unfortunately, the court didn't challenge them, and they accepted the forged letters as real evidence. Glenn was still under Liz's spell, and he didn't defend himself against her claims, so he ended up pleading guilty. And just like that, Liz walked out of the courtroom, a free woman. Later on, Liz had two more children, a daughter and a son. Her son's father was her ex-boyfriend, Dirk. Dirk had broken up with Liz after she became controlling and insanely jealous. After the breakup, he started dating a new woman named Melissa, and Liz hated her pretty much from the get-go. Liz would stop by or call Dirk constantly, and once she even keyed Melissa's car. Sometimes she would text Melissa explicit photos of her and Dirk to try and get Melissa to believe that Dirk was cheating. Not only that, but Liz was trying to become Melissa. First, Liz started studying to work as a pharmacy tech, which was the same job that Melissa had. Then Liz got hair extensions to match Melissa's hairstyle. Melissa had a black Mitsubishi, so Liz bought a black Mitsubishi. Liz opened credit cards under Melissa's name, and sometimes Liz even told other people that her name was in fact Melissa. So obviously, Melissa had pretty good reasons to be afraid of her. One day, Liz brought cookies to their house, except one container of cookies was specifically labeled for Melissa. She joked with Dirk that Liz was trying to poison her, but he brushed it off. The whole thing still gave her a weird feeling, and she threw out the cookies. Knowing what we know now, those instincts may have actually saved her life, because those cookies were likely poisoned. Later on, Liz started dating a man named Garrett Sloan. Garrett noticed that Liz loved horror movies particularly gory and violent ones, which he found really disturbing. But whenever he'd look away in horror, he'd see Liz next to him, staring at the TV, completely emotionless. Even weirder was that Liz once told Garrett that horror movies were funny to her. 
the same way comedy movies are funny to other people. In 2012, Garrett worried that Liz was cheating on him. She'd become distant and cold. And it turns out Liz was cheating on him with none other than Dave Krupa. Every Wednesday, she told Garrett she was working, but she was really with Dave. And he didn't find out until years later. At the same time, Dave had no idea that Liz had a boyfriend, even though he encouraged her to see other people. Once Liz joked with Dave that she was going to try and set her friend, Garrett, up with Crazy Carrie. When Liz moved in with Garrett, he thought they'd be sleeping in the same bed. Instead, Liz took the basement and acted more like a roommate than a girlfriend. The only time he noticed she was sweet to him was when she needed something. Otherwise, she avoided him completely. Liz claimed to be a housekeeper, but she turned the basement into a complete mess. She left clothes and junk scattered all over the floor constantly. It was really common for Garrett to find rotting bags of half-eaten fast food that Liz had left out for days. She also didn't pay any rent or any of the utilities, so Garrett wanted her to find a new place to live, but he knew she couldn't afford it, so he just let her stay. He didn't want her kids to be left homeless. We don't know exactly how much investigators knew about Liz's past at this point, but they did have evidence that proved Liz was a stalker, and they knew she had something to do with Carrie's disappearance. They just needed more proof. Now, before we get into the wrap-up of this crazy story, we're going to take our final break. So Detective Doty and Detective Avis decided to take another look at the mint tin that was found in Carrie's car. If you remember, it had a fingerprint on it. When they compared Liz's fingerprints to one of the tins, surprise, surprise, it lined up. It's it a was match. a match. On December 11th, detectives placed a tracker on Liz's car, and they set it up to alert them whenever Liz drove near Amy's house. And over the next few days, detectives got multiple alerts. Liz would usually drive through Amy's parking lot for around a minute and then leave. On December 14th, Detective Doty called Liz for an interview. He and Avis were starting a new plan that would trick Liz into giving them more evidence. During the interview, Detective Doty lied and told Liz that Carrie's remains had been discovered. And of course, she had a big internal oh shit moment. Liz pretended like she didn't know all that much about the Carrie situation at all, though. Pretty significant break in the case, okay? okay. Um, there have some, been some remains that have been located. Okay. The initial indication is that these remains are Carrie. Okay. Okay. Is there anyone that you think would want to hurt Carrie? I didn't know her long enough to know if anybody wanted to hurt her. She told Dodie that she only met her once. She claimed that Carrie had called her a bitch while the two passed each other in the doorway. Liz said she brushed that comment off. The case is regarding uh, Carrie Farver. Are you familiar with her? Barely even know her. Yeah, yeah. I ran into her one time. Okay, okay. Just bypassing her, going into Dave's apartment to pick up my stuff. Once again, Liz claimed that she thought Amy was behind all of the stockings. Dodie played along with it and told her that if Amy was crazy enough to stalk Dave, then she was probably crazy enough to shoot Liz. Them for 12 years, and she still goes in and out of his life all the time. So. Yeah. So you think she could have been a person that did some of that stuff to you? I'm just saying, as a, another person who would be possessive of Dave, it mm. would be her. So this was enough to trick Liz into believing that she was in control. Dodie told her that the police needed her help to collect more evidence against Amy, and of course, she happily agreed. And four days later, Liz forwarded an email to Dodie from Amy. And in the email, Amy confessed to shooting Liz to keep her away from Dave. But Dodie told Liz that he needed information from Amy about Carrie's murder, not the shooting. 
see if you could kind of push her uh, for some more info on the Carrie thing, what she did to Carrie and so forth like that. That would help our case immensely if it was uh, more specific. So you guys want me to try and email her back? I'm leaving that in your court, Liz. I mean, if that's something you would feel okay doing, uh, that'd be really helpful for us. I can't believe she fell for that. Yeah, literally fell, fell right into their trap. Hmm. So sure enough, on December 20th, Liz magically got another email from Amy. And when detectives opened it, they found a chilling confession written by Liz. So when I met Crazy Carrie, she would not stop talking about Dave and him being her husband. She tried to attack me, but I attacked her with a knife. I stabbed her three to four times in the chest and stomach area. I then took her out and burned her. I stuffed her body in a garbage bag with crap. She was carried out to the dumpster probably when Dave took out my garbage for me. The detective's plan was working, and over the next few weeks she continued to forward emails from Amy. Liz was starting to get frustrated that they hadn't arrested her yet. The cops knew that the thought of Amy and Dave being together would drive Liz even crazier, so they waited. And finally, in late January of 2016, Dave called Detective Avis. He was worried. Liz had told him that Amy was actually the one stalking them. Not only that, but Amy apparently murdered Carrie, shot Liz, and burnt Liz's house down. Detective Avis actually urged Dave to move in with Amy. He also warned him to avoid Liz like the plague, since she shared this information with him. And that same day, Detective Doty visited Dave at work. He sat him down and told him the truth. Liz was definitely the one stalking him, and she was responsible for Carrie's disappearance. They also warned him that Liz was highly dangerous to him and his family. All this news was an incredible shock for Dave. What he thought had been the reality for the past few years of his life had been completely shattered. Dave moved in with Amy right away. He didn't realize that the detectives had actually kind of played a trick on him too, because they wanted Dave and Amy to move in together so that Liz would become desperate. On February 1st, Liz called up Detective Doty crying and angry that Amy was still free. Looks like the only person that benefited was her. So she gets to shoot somebody, and then she gets to kill another person, and then she gets to move in with Dave, and she gets to be free. And you guys aren't arresting her. Literally the most upset she's been this entire time of course. when Dave moves in with Amy. Because things aren't going her way. Detective Doty told Liz that they needed more evidence against Amy, and of course she provided that. She gave Doty access to her emails, and that day he watched as multiple emails from Amy popped up on the screen. Liz was playing right into their plan. One of the emails mentioned a yin-yang tattoo that Carrie had on her thigh groin area. Police had mentioned Carrie's other tattoos in her missing persons flyers, but her yin-yang tattoo hadn't been. It was in a private area and very few people knew about it. The emails also revealed that the murder took place in Carrie's car. So, once again, detectives tracked down Carrie's car and searched it. And this time, the forensic investigator took off the covers of the seats. And that's when they discovered large red bloodstains under the passenger seat. They ran some tests and the blood matched. It was Carrie's. Why wouldn't they check this before? The mm. seat covers? Like, take yeah. them off. Duh. Yeah, you would think so. That's a pretty big thing to miss. Well, I mean, from their perspective, there was no reason to necessarily do that, you know, in-depth type of search but they should have i mean this she was considered a missing person so. right right you, well you expect that mm. you know when somebody goes missing that they turn over every rock and yeah. look at everything but yeah i mean seat covers i mean they're not assuming that 
somebody's been killed in the car. But I get I get your guys' point. I think yeah. it was probably a, a if mis- I were her step family, on their part. Especially her son and her mother, I'd be so fucking livid. Like they could have figured this that. out a ways back. I mean, we're talking oh, yeah. years going by at this point. And meanwhile, her name is just being tarnished throughout all of this. So February 21st, someone threw a rock through Amy's window. Dave immediately called police, who used their tracker to confirm that Liz was the culprit. Police arrested her, but she was actually released because she pled guilty and paid the fine. Then four days later, police searched Liz's new apartment while she was at work, and they took any electronic devices that they could find, including multiple phones that belonged to Liz and two of Carrie's cameras. That day, police arrested Liz at work for an unpaid traffic violation. A detective walked her into an interview room and told her that he wanted to talk about a missing persons case. Yeah, it kind of just worked out really good for them that she had already been there for an unrelated case. Yeah, and they saw her and they're like, oh, perfect opportunity to, to talk to her about Carrie. Yeah, let's play a clip of this interview. The reason why you're in this chair right now today is because you have a lot of questions that you need to answer for me. Um, her phone was at your house right after she disappeared. And I want to ask you how you can explain that to me, please. She's okay. never been to my house. Your fingerprints are inside her vehicle. How would your fingerprints be inside her vehicle? I don't know, because I've never been in her car. You drove her car. No, I didn't. <laughs> I've never been inside her car. I've yeah, never even she, been around DNA her car. does not lie. Yeah. Ever. Your fingerprints are in there. No, I haven't. I'm not lying. I've never been around her car. I've never even seen it. For years and years, people have been um, sending emails under Carrie's fictitious accounts. The IP addresses show up to whose house? <laughs> Your house. I'm dumb. I haven't had internet at my house. Why would you create all these emails? I haven't created any emails. All these have been coming from your from no, your house. And I'm not going to be accused of something that I didn't do. Fingers pointing right at you. I'm done talking and I'm going to have my attorney because I didn't do anything. So Liz's defense attorney paid for her traffic violation and she was released from jail. And in the meantime, detectives had to wait before they could arrest her for Carrie's murder. They needed some time to find more evidence and hopefully a body so that Liz could be convicted. They only had one shot at putting Liz away for life. Getting justice for Carrie depended on how well they could prosecute a no-body case, which is very difficult. Without a body, they're going to need a mountain of evidence to convict Liz of first-degree murder. So finally, on December 22nd, 2016, Shanna Liz Golier was arrested for the murder of Carrie Farber. Liz waived her right to a jury trial at her preliminary hearing, and this meant that a judge would decide if she was guilty or not. Her trial was set to begin on May 10th. Detectives had to work quickly to build their case. On February 1st, they got a huge break when Dave found a tablet that investigators missed in their initial searches. And when they looked at the tablet, they found an SD card, and it turned out that this SD card had once been in Liz's cell phone. And when the forensic specialist examined it, he saw that Liz had deleted a strange picture. Because just because you delete stuff on a memory card doesn't mean that it's permanently gone. And this photo was of someone's tattooed and decomposing foot. Nancy turned over photos of Carrie's feet. When detectives compared the photos, the tattoos matched. Liz had killed Carrie and taken a photo of her foot as some sort of trophy. How sick is that? Not only did she take the photo of Carrie's foot tattoo, but she took a photo of Carrie's hidden yin-yang tattoo as well. It was the same tattoo Liz mentioned in her emails impersonating Amy. 
and this was the proof the detectives were looking for. Liz's trial officially began on May 10th, and Liz was charged with first-degree murder and second-degree arson. The prosecution carefully outlined their case, and they argued that Liz confronted Carrie as she was leaving Dave's apartment, then stabbed her repeatedly in the chest, took photos of her body, and burned it before getting rid of her remains. And from there, Liz cleaned the car and pretended to be Carrie to cover up her crimes. They argued that Liz did all this in a jealous rage. She stopped at nothing to try and have Dave all to herself. After she murdered Carrie, she spent years tormenting Dave, Amy, and Carrie's family for her own sick satisfaction. Liz put a lot of effort into her twisted game. She used VPNs to try and hide her IP address when she sent thousands of fake emails. To send the harassing texts, she used free messaging apps to create fake phone numbers. Dave and Liz would get texts from Carrie at the same time while they were together, and that was because Liz scheduled them beforehand using an app called Letter Me Later. Liz even used an app that deepened her voice to make that fake phone call to Nancy, where she pretended to be Dave. Overall, Liz sent between 25,000 to 50,000 messages to her victims. It's estimated that she spent over 40 to 50 hours a week stalking and harassing her victims. It was literally her full-time job. After establishing Liz's complex web of online harassment and lies, the prosecution turned to the murder itself. They showed how Liz's fake Amy emails matched up closely with the photo evidence they recovered. The court was shown the photos of Carrie's body that Liz took, which featured her distinctive tattoos. They also brought up that Liz's fingerprint was found in Carrie's car. If it were Carrie's car, she'd obviously have her own fingerprints in it, but there weren't any. So Liz clearly cleaned Carrie's car after the murder, and she had just forgotten to get that one last fingerprint. Next, they explained how Liz disposed of the body. There were photos she took of a burnt tarp that was the size of a person, which she probably used to burn Carrie's remains. Garrett testified that Liz smelled like smoke or something burnt in the fall or winter of 2012, right around the time Carrie disappeared. Liz was no stranger to fire. She'd burnt down her own house just to keep Dave in her life. She was so heartless, so persistent in her mission that she didn't think twice about killing four innocent pets. Liz didn't care about animals, and she didn't really care about people either. One of the most heartbreaking parts of the trial came when Amy read out one of Liz's emails. It was the description of Carrie's murder that Liz sent under Amy's name. Part of the letter said, when I killed Carrie, you know she begged me to call Dave at work, and she begged me to talk to her family before she died. It was absolutely devastating for Carrie's family to hear that. Nancy sobbed in the courtroom, and she couldn't bear to hear how her daughter's final moments were. Then it was the defense's turn. They tried to argue that there was no proof Carrie had actually been murdered without a body. They said all the evidence the prosecution had was circumstantial, and a judge couldn't convict Liz on that. Liz's attorney said she was on trial for murder, not harassment. The only thing the prosecution proved was that Liz was a stalker. That didn't mean that they successfully proved that she was also a murderer. But the judge wasn't convinced by the defense's case, and all the evidence pointed to Liz murdering Carrie in cold blood. On May 24th, 2017, Shanna Elizabeth Gallier was found guilty of first-degree murder and second-degree arson. She was sentenced to life in prison, and she showed no remorse or emotion as she was handcuffed and led out of the courtroom. Carrie's killer had finally been brought to justice. The family cried and hugged one another after the verdict, and Liz would never be able to hurt anyone again. Still, their hearts were broken. The verdict would never bring back their beautiful daughter, Carrie. She's got a life sentence now, but she also gave everybody else that loved Carrie a life sentence. She took Carrie's life, 
she gave my grandson a life sentence of not having his mother there and all of the people that love her. We have to live with the nightmare that we have lived with for so long. So after all of this happened, Dave and Amy remained good friends and they still co-parent their kids. Years later, David feels a massive amount of guilt over Carrie's death. He appeared on multiple TV programs about the case because he believes he needs to help share Carrie's story. Her mother, Nancy, does not hold any anger towards Dave. She believes that he was also a victim of Liz's evil, like Carrie was. Nancy and her husband still talk to the detectives who solved Carrie's case, and they actually are so close with them, they consider them to be family members. As for Liz, she is still serving her sentence at the Nebraska Correctional Center for Women in Gork, Nebraska. In 2017, her defense lawyer received anonymous emails threatening Liz's children's lives. And as you can probably guess, Liz most likely sent these herself from a contraband phone in prison. Once, a detective visited the prison to speak with another inmate, and that inmate told them that Liz was insane and that she demanded that the other inmates call her Carrie. Whoa. That's fucking weird. Liz filed an appeal to have her conviction overturned, and it was denied in 2018. Yeah, she she claims she's innocent. Of course. Out of all this stuff. Of course. Psychopath, man. Yeah. Her daughter now lives with a loving aunt, and her son lives with his father, and they're, you know, way better off without her in their lives. Max, Carrie's son, is now married, and he ended up following in his mother's footsteps. He went to school for data science and currently works as a software engineer. However, Max misses his mother dearly every day, and he hopes that he's making her proud. Oh, man. I know. It's terrible. It's, it's horrible. This poor guy lost his mother. And, and just this, like, happen chance scenario, yeah. like, it could have very much never totally, happened. Like, yeah. wrong place, wrong time situation. Literally, yeah. Just happened to be leaving as Liz came in and saw her, like, Yep. I mean, she's I, in such a casual relationship with him, too. Yeah, like, yeah. just what are the chances? Why did she get so mad about Carrie? It's almost like that day when she was trying to get in and he was like, you, you're going to have to wait. I'm on a date with someone right, else. That right. just made her so mad. And seeing her Jealousy, must have man. just triggered something. Yeah. I mean, this wasn't that serious of a relationship. Carrie didn't even want anything serious. It's just terrible how this whole thing played out. I mean, I think there's a lot more going on with Liz, clearly. I think yeah. there's probably some mental issues there yeah she's clearly obviously. a psychopath and i mean just looking at her history the fact that mm-hmm. she could have literally killed her baby in the past is, yeah it seems very likely that she did yeah so she's a killer like through and through that's crazy mm-hmm. yeah yeah what a wild Completely story selfish yeah it really is but that is going to be it for us today guys we hope that you found this case as interesting as we did it's just unbelievable how these things happen and how people can be truly so evil to the core yeah, and just go to the the extents and lengths that Liz did in order to try to pull this off. And yeah. I mean, luckily she was, you know, not the brightest and made a lot of missteps <laughs> yeah. in the process. So yeah. they were, you know, law enforcement was able to figure it out eventually and they were able to get to the bottom of it. But it's, it seems like she really thought she was going to get away with it, just like she got away with the death of her son. Right. That's that's exactly right. I think that's probably what her brain was thinking. She mm-hmm. was like, oh, I got away with it before. I'm so. invincible. Yeah, I'm going to do it again. So, yeah, let us know what your guys' thoughts are on this case. But that is it for us today. Make sure you're subscribed to us on YouTube. Definitely mm-hmm. watch us on either Spotify or YouTube so you can see a lot of the overlay and actual uh, interrogation footage of and, this episode. And see our beautiful new sets. Yes, mm-hmm. please check it Isn't out. Let it us amazing? know our thoughts on it. And huge thank you to Blair Fowler for this beautiful Absolutely. set design. We are so Turned happy so with good. it. 
She did such a fantastic job. But until next time, guys, keep taking your mind a mile higher. higher.